Praise God. It's good to be with you again. So if you have your Bibles, I want to read to you three passages, one from Exodus chapter 6, and one from Exodus chapter 3, and then a line from the Lord's Prayer. Let me begin with Exodus chapter 6. And all of these passages that I am reading have to do with the name of God. Let me read, first of all, from Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenants. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then chapter 3, chapter 3 of Exodus, a chapter or so back, and let me read from verse 10. God speaks to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Or you should translate the Hebrew, What does his name mean? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is what I am to be remembered by throughout all generations. And I I read those two passages as a kind of background to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus was telling us how to pray, and he told us to address God as our Father. And the first request that we are to put to God, said Jesus, is, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Matthew chapter 6, pray like this, say, our Father, hallowed be your name. Your name. So we're looking at one or two things in the Lord's Prayer. I say one or two things, we'd have to stay here for many months to go all the way through it, but uh, one or two things from the Lord's Prayer. And last night I was trying to introduce you to the great subject of the Lord's Prayer. I was trying to convince you of what an incredible, amazing thing this Lord's Prayer is. It is utterly amazing, and the more you meditate upon it and ponder it, I think the more you will see that. It takes time to see it. I think initially we don't see it. 
But as you ponder and meditate on this amazing prayer, you see more and more. I was saying that it really expresses the heart of prayer, the, the spirit of prayer. It's not so much an instruction about times or language or details. It's more about the heart of prayer, the, the very thing that's upon our heart and our minds as we're coming to talk to God. It comes out in these, in these uh, short little statements that we have here. I was saying it's the equivalent of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was the heart of what was needed by ancient Israel. But the Lord's Prayer is the heart of what is needed by the church. Calvin made that point, and I was trying to expound it to you a bit last night, and John Stott also makes that point in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Something I don't think I did say, but I say it now, is it's also a commitment to a lifestyle. Don't pray any of these things unless you want to be involved in the answer to your own prayers. That's always what prayer is. It's not God who needs prayer. God doesn't need our praying. We don't pray for God's sake. We pray for our sake. And we're asking that our relationship with him might, might be what it ought to be. So when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're really committing yourself to glorifying God's name. When you pray, your kingdom come, you're committing yourself to be a, a, an agent of the kingdom of God. When you say, your will be done, you're, you're saying that you want your God's will to be done in your life. When you're praying for your daily bread, you're praying for yourself as you need to stay alive to be a member of the kingdom. You, you, can't, you can't be a member of the kingdom here on earth. If you go to heaven, you, you have to be alive here. And you pray for your for forgiveness. You can't serve God if you're unforgiven. You pray for protection. You can't serve God if you're not protected from the evil one. You're committing yourself to a certain lifestyle as you pray the Lord's Prayer. And I also said something which I'll put in a different way this morning. It's almost as though the Lord's Prayer is a systematic theology. That's an amazing thing to say, but you may be surprised at that and... It sort of takes time to see it. When you are expounding the entire Christian faith, how do you do it? And under what kind of headings do you do it? The great John Calvin, who wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, is a kind of survey of the Christian faith. He wrote it for the King of France, who was persecuting Bible-believing Christians. So Calvin wrote a description of what we believe, and it expanded expanded over the years until it became a huge, big, fat volume. He, he followed the order of the Apostles' Creed. He went through the statements of the Creed in writing his great systematics. When I'm trying to expound the Christian faith, I tend to do it in about ten topics. God, creation, man, and the fall of man. Jesus, because having fallen, that's what we need, Jesus. Faith in Jesus, the outworking of faith, the church, revelation, the Holy Spirit, and the last things. I tend to put it under about ten but you could say that the Lord's Prayer is a kind of systematic theology. It's almost, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but it's almost a systematic theology under, under six headings. Because here's everything you need to know, as it were, of the Christian faith. What's the Christian faith all about? It begins with the glory of God. Everything really is coming from and leading to the glory of God. And the first thing you ever pray is, your name be hallowed, your name be recognized, your name be distinct from all other names and glorified in this world. You're really dealing with the glory of God. And then the second topic is the kingdom of God. What is God doing? He's bringing his kingdom. You could say he's bringing salvation. Salvation and kingdom are more or less the same thing, except kingdom is a, is a slightly wider way of putting it. The kingdom, that's what God is doing. He's a king. And the one thing a king does is he saves his people. A king rescues his people from their enemies. And if you ask what is God doing in this world, he's bringing in his kingdom, which means he's putting down all enemies and he's saving his people. Salvation is one aspect of kingdom. 
And then you want the particulars, then God is bringing about the particularities of his will, the particular things he wants to be done, he's doing it here in this world. That's where the world is going. And then he does it by taking a people. And the first thing he does for those people is he provides for them. He gives them their daily bread. Our God meets our needs. Not our greeds, but our needs. Anything we need for being who we are and what we are, in his kingdom he will provide it for us. We will not be lacking anything that we need to to be what we are and do his will. You might not have everything you want, but you, you won't lack anything you need. And we pray for that. You Give me my bread. I need to stay alive. I need some finances. I need to keep going in life. You pray for that. Part of God's plan of salvation. He begins by keeping us alive. Then he deals with our past. He forgives us our sins. Then he deals with our future. He protects us from all those enemies out there until we get to where we're meant to be. It's like a kind of entire survey of the plan of God, what he's doing. It's a kind of systematic theology under, under six headings. And if you take these six points, as I'm I won't say I'm doing it, but, but I'm just giving you a few hints about it. But if I can show you how you should take these little six prayers, or six or seven, depending how you count them, take these little six prayers and ponder them day and night, you will get a grasp of the entire plan of God. It's a kind of total systematic theology under, under, six, it's like under six headings. It's like the contents page of a systematic theology. You go, you go and look at the bookshop at the back and see Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Well, open page one, there you have the contents under headings. And it's almost that's what the Lord's Prayer is. It's like a contents page of all of the things you ought to get into when you're trying to seek to know the whole plan and counsel of God. So that means I could put it like this. That prayer is the entire gospel put into praise and request. Do you follow that? Prayer is the entire gospel put into praise. You're praising God for what he's doing and you're requesting that he'll do it. That's what prayer is. And you're not really praying in the right way until the, the whole gospel is gripping you. When the whole gospel is gripping you and you're just praying that it might happen, that's what prayer is. Do you remember that passage in Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 39, where God says, I will do it, but I will be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. You know that verse? I will do it. This is what I'm going to do. These are my plans. It's about restoring Israel. I will do it, but... I want to be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. That's what prayer is. God will do certain things, but he likes to do them as we ask him to do them. That's where prayer comes in. It just fulfills his purpose and plans. Even Jesus is doing it. Even Jesus, what's Jesus doing right now? I can tell you he's praying. The one thing that Jesus is doing in the heavenly glory is interceding. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding, which means he's putting requests. And even Jesus does not get the kingdom except by asking the Father for it. Ask of me, says Psalm 2. Ask of me, says the Father to the Son, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Even Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, is carrying forward the kingdom of God by prayer, a kind of prayer. I don't mean he's begging. I don't mean he's on bended knee, because that's not true. But he is putting requests to the Father. And the kingdom of God is going forward as we pray and just Jesus prays. We're just joining Jesus. He's praying and we're praying with him. That's what prayer is. That's how the kingdom of God and the glory of God gets carried forward and that's what God is doing. So prayer is the entire gospel, the entire progress of the kingdom of God turned into praise. We begin by praising him because that's what he's doing and we enjoy it and we admire him for doing it. Turned into praise and turned into requests. We ask 
that he will do these things. We say to him, hallowed be your name. That's what he's doing. We say to him, your kingdom come. That's what he's doing. We just ask that he'll do it. Your will be done. That's what's going to happen. It involves our asking that it might happen. Give us today our daily bread. Well, God will do it for us. But you have to ask for it. You ask for the forgiveness of your sins. You ask for protection for the future. So that's my attempt to give you a kind of overview. And I think we need to get that overview of what the Lord's Prayer is. And if you meditate upon this day and night, you will see all sorts of things. You know, there are many churches, especially Anglican churches, where as you come in, the Ten Commandments are in the back, on, on, the, on the back wall. I'm not sure it should be the Ten Commandments on the back wall. I have a sneaking suspicion it should be the Lord's Prayer on the back wall. This is what the Gospel's all about. The Kingdom coming, God's glory, God providing for us, God forgiving our sins, God protecting from all our enemies and getting his will done through us as the agents of the Kingdom. That's what it's all about. That's what ought to be in our, on our back wall. We're not under the law. The law was for Israel, kept them moral out of fear of punishment. But the Ten Commandments goes higher than the law, greater and bigger and grander than the ten, even than the Ten Commandments. So what I want to do then is to pick up one or two of these things. We won't get very far, I'm just giving you a few hints. But I'd like to begin with this first one. You remember a few years ago, we were here and we spent the whole time on God being our Father. So I can skip our Father. We did that a few years ago. I can go on to the next one. Hallowed be, hallowed be your name. The very first thing that's, as it were, on our hearts as we pray is the glory and the honour and the sanctification, the, the setting aside as something very special and very, new, very unique, hallowing it, the glory and the honour and the sanctity of the name of God. And we pray that way. Uh, I'm repeating myself a bit because I'm conscious that one or two of you have joined us today. But I was saying last night that this prayer is highly logical, that every th- each clause leads to the next one. When you say, our Father, what you want for your Father is for him to be honoured. When you say to God, I want you to be honoured, how do you want him to be honoured? You want his kingdom to come. When you want his kingdom to come, what is that? It's his will being done. Who does his will? You do. And the first thing you need is you need to stay alive. And the next thing you need is for your past to be dealt with. And the next thing you need is for your future to be dealt with. The bread for the present, forgiveness for the past, and protection for the future. It's covering everything. It's all very logical. In fact, once you've said, our Father, you've said the whole lot. Because all these things are really involved and implicit in God's being your father and you're honouring him as your father. Everything else follows from it. And the next thing is just coming because you honour God as your father is you want him to be honoured, you want him to be magnified. That would be true of any earthly father. My children like me to be honoured. Any, any father, his children want him to be admired and respected. That's the way it is with us in our relationship to God, our father. We want him to be honoured and glorified. But the particular way in which it's put is in this first request is hallowed, sanctified, glorified, be your name. If I don't set my watch, I'll be preaching here till midnight, so let me just set my watch. Hallowed be your name. We pray for the honour and the glory of God's name. And one of the big themes of the Bible, it's a massive big theme of the entire Bible. I could call it a, a section of the entire faith. When you're thinking about it, it's and divided into six, it's the big first big section, as it were, of the entire Christian faith. 
the name of God, which is the same as the glory of God. It's more or less the same because God's glory shines out. You label it, you give it a name, the same thing. The glory of God, the honor of God, the amazing character of God, his name. And what life and existence is all about is the glory of God. If you don't think much about the glory of God, you have a total dimension missing in your thinking of the Christian faith. The very heart of everything is the glory of God. I was reading a book of systematic theology the other day. Who was it by? I forgot his name. My Dabney, I think it was, who was arguing why it has to be. And the reason why it has to be, it said, says Dabney, is because when God created the heavens and the earth, there was nothing else there. So what could he possibly be creating the heavens and the earth for when there was nothing else in existence anyway? Well, the only thing he could possibly be creating the heavens and the earth for is for himself. He's doing it for himself. He wants to display himself and be himself. The only, the only possible reason why God could create in the first place is his own honor and glory and displaying of who he is and what he can do. And that's the way the Bible puts it. Remember how Paul puts it, where they were quarreling and arguing about technical little things, whether you could eat meat at the temple and that sort of thing. Paul said, well, whatever you do, however your life might go, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, he's talking about different types of uh, food, eating food in the temple. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do everything, do everything for the glory of God. This is what life is all about. The one thing we are meant to be living for is the glory of God and the honour of God's name. And as you pray, this is, the, this is the, the spirit of prayer. This is the thing that should permeate and, uh, and go through all of, all of your praying. The honour and the glory of God. You shouldn't be too selfish in your prayers. And I, I was asking you to notice last night how the word I and me do not come in this prayer. You don't pray, give me my daily bread. You pray, give us our daily bread. You're praying not only for yourself, but the entire people of God, that we might all be provided for to do God's will. And there's this total lack of selfishness in this prayer. You don't even mention the word I at all. And you begin with God, and you pray for the glory and the honour of God. And I'm putting it to you that this is expounding the spirit of prayer. It's not just one request. I think sometimes we make the mistake, and I think I've made this mistake. It's in my, in my book on, on the Lord's Prayer. I think I would change that sentence. I, I sometimes have described the Lord's Prayer as a kind of prayer list. Well, that's true, and I still I wouldn't uh, disagree with myself too much. But, um, but it's been more than that. It's not just one particular request. It is the whole heart and spirit of prayer. It's the thing that permeates all of your praying, a desire that God might be glorified and honoured. Remember how Jesus put it. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, but they don't glorify you, they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Everything we're living for, they see, they see it, they don't glorify us, they glorify God. They see your good works, but they glorify your Father, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount again. So it's a big theme of the Bible. The, the honour and the glory of God's name and God's got himself a reputation, God's got himself a name, and we are to pray for his glory and his honour in everything we do. That's the thing that should permeate our praying. In some ways, the whole story goes back to those passages that I read in Exodus. And the name of God is expressed, can you follow this? The name of God is expressed in names. 
The, the name singular is expressed in particular names that God has, is given. And so in the Bible, people keep on giving God a name. Something happens and someone gives God a name. Hagar, in the Old Testament, suddenly realises that God is watching her. So she gives God a name. Oh, you are the God of seeing. Abraham is out up on the top of the mountain having volunteered to offer his son. And God says, no, you, won't. You, you need not do it. I'll give you a sacrifice for sins other than your son. I'll give my son. And he gives a picture of God giving a sacrifice. And God names, Abraham names God, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will see to it. Or in our translations, it's normally the Lord will provide. The Hebrew says the Lord will see to it. When you need a sacrifice for sin, the Lord will see to it. You don't need to provide your own sacrifice. God has, has gave Abraham a sacrifice. And it's a picture of Jesus. And when Romans 8, 32, I think it is, says God spared not his own son, but delivered him up. He's he's using the same language of that passage in Genesis. Abraham spared not his own son, was willing to abandon him and let him die under the will of God. And God, Abraham didn't have to do it. God saw to it and he did it instead. He spared not his own son, but handed him over. And Abraham said, oh, I'm going to give you a name. You are Yahweh Yireh. You are the Lord will provide. You are the Yahweh will see to it. And he gives God a name. Every time people have some experience of the Lord, they give him a name. He's Yahweh, the Lord, our righteousness, says Jeremiah. God gives us a righteousness. He's Yahweh Shalom. He's the Lord, our peace. He's meant to be the very peace of our lives. These men, when they see who God is, they name God. They express the name of God in a particular name. And the greatest one, of course, is Yahweh, or sometimes people pronounce it Jehovah wrongly. It should be pronounced Yahweh. But it goes back to the Exodus. And that's why I was reading those passages. When God sent Moses to rescue Israel, everybody knew the name Yahweh. It was an old name. It goes all the way back to the early stages of the history of salvation, but they didn't know what it meant. God just named himself Yahweh, which seems to be a very, very early proto-Semitic way of saying he is. In, in modern Hebrew or biblical Hebrew, it would be yir yichye. But in ancient, ancient, ancient Hebrew, the I was an A and the Y was a W. So it turns out to be Yahweh in this early, early, early Hebrew. Yahweh. Yeah, he is. The only thing about, they knew about God is, he, is he's there. He is, he exists. But they didn't quite know the fullness of, of what it means and, and what, what he does and who he is. So they used the name, but they didn't completely know what it was. And uh, so Moses says, no good sending me to Israel. That They'll say, Moses, you're our leader. You don't even know what God's name means. What should I say to them when they, when they ask the biggest question of all? What, what, who is God? What's God like? And God says, all right, I'll, I'll solve the problem for you. And so God tells Moses something about his name. So Moses says, if when I go and they ask about your name, what, what am I going to say? And God says, will you go and say to them, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And you go and tell them, I am has sent me to you. And go and say, Yahweh has said this, that, and the other. And that's all the same phrase. It's being progressively shortened. The long version is, I am that I am. Then you can make it a bit shorter, I am. Then you can make it shorter still, he is. It's the same name being, being compressed into one word. 
So Yahweh, he is, it's the short version of I am that I am. If you want to know what I am, I am who I am. I am Yahweh, he is. It's, it's the name being progressively shortened until it gets to one word. And what it means is this. What God is really saying is something like this. He's saying, Moses, just watch me now. I'm about to do the biggest thing I'm ever doing in the entire history of Israel. And you watch me now, and when you see what I'm doing right now, that's who I am. I am who I am right now. Watch, watch me, watch me now, and that's what I am. And what, what does God do? He steps into the lives of, of people who are slaves in, in bondage, and he redeems them. He rescues them and delivers them, but he does it at a certain cost. That's the meaning of the word redeem. Redeem means deliver at, 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 at the payment of a price. Deliver at a certain cost. He redeems them. He saves them, but, but it costs him something. And the price that he pays is the blood of a lamb. He says to the people, go and take a lamb. And he always talks of it as though it's only one lamb. Actually, it's thousands. Every, every household has to take a lamb. But, but it's not spoken of as thousands of lambs. It's spoken of as if it's one. Go and take the blood of the lamb and slaughter a lamb and paint the lamb around, around the door, around the side, around the top, around the, around the other side, but not upon the bottom. You never, you never trample the blood around the side of the door. And when I come in, in into Egypt, I'll come in as the holy God. I'll come in judging sin and as the firstborn of every family will perish as a sign that they're all under judgment. Egyptian, Israelite, everybody. I'll come throughout the entire land, but there'll be a way of salvation. If you will shelter, if you will come under the blood of the Lamb. If you hide under, the, under the, the, the blood that's been shed because the Lamb has died for you, anybody, the firstborn, anybody who shelters under the blood of the Lamb, I will pass over him and the judgment will not touch him. What does Yahweh mean? It means the God who takes the people, saving them by the blood of the Lamb. Every time you, you use the word Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord entirely in capital letters, which is the contemporary way of translating Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's always the word Yahweh. Every time you see that word, the Lord, in capital letters, and it's 4,000 times in the, in the Old Testament, every one of those 4,000 times when you see the word Yahweh or the Lord entirely in capital letters, it is the God who saves the people by the blood of a lamb, rescuing them from bondage, taking them for himself, delivering them from all of their enemies, and taking them to a place where they will worship him. Did you notice God didn't mention the law. He didn't say, I'll come here to, you come here on Mount Sinai and I'll give you the law. He didn't say that. He said, you'll come here on Mount Sinai and you'll worship me. You're not saved to, to be under law. You're saved to worship. And the law came in afterwards when they sinned. They, they worship him. It's the sign that you really have been saved is I'll bring you here, says God to Moses, and you will worship me. You will serve me in, in worship and praise. Yahweh is the God who saves people, rescuing them from their bondage, from all of their bondages, bringing them to a new life, a new place under, under God himself, and doing so by means of the blood of the Lamb, and the way in which they take hold of it is simply by believing. They simply take, by faith, shelter under that blood of the Lamb. And I like to visualize that night. I often just... Uh, Imagine what that night was like. Just imagine that night when the angel of death, the angel of judgment, 
comes into the entire land of Egypt in every family executing judgment upon their sins. But they've been told that there's a way of salvation there. They can shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And if they will do that, they'll be all right. I like to imagine that night. I I imagine that there's some guy on that night who says, I don't think I need this. You know, I'm not much of a sinner. I don't need to shelter under the blood of the Lamb. I don't think God will uh, strike me down in judgment. I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a child of Abraham, I'm a Jew, I'm one of God's chosen people, I think I'm all right. And he wanders out that night, he's the firstborn son, but he wanders out that night. He's a good person, sort of good person, fairly moral, certainly fairly upright, doesn't do any great big sins. He's a Jew, he's a background, he knows, he knows uh, the story of, of Israel, the people of God, he's, he's every reason to think that maybe he's all right. And he gets struck down that night because he's not sheltering under the blood of the Lamb. You're not sheltering under the blood of the, the blood of Jesus. Nothing else will save you. Your morality, your nationality, your churchianity, your Christian family can be son of a pastor. Makes no difference. Only one thing will save anybody: sheltering under the blood of the Lamb. And then I like to imagine, not in the Bible, but I'm allowed to use my imagination. I like to imagine that there's some person out there who says, "No, I don't think God's going to save me." I've been so wicked. I've, I've done such terrible things. I've committed such awful things. I'm sure when judgment comes, uh, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm sure God will smite me down. Some flash of lightning will slaughter me. But I, I heard Moses say that if I shelter under that blood, judgment will pass me by. I, I think I'm going to do it. And that wicked, profane, filthy, disgusting sinner who's led such a wicked night is sheltering under the blood of the Lamb that night. And the angel of judgment passes him by. He is sheltering under the blood of the Lamb, and so he's all right. And then I like the, I like the Cecil B. DeMille version. Did you ever see the famous Hollywood film, The Ten Commandments? There's a little bit where, in that film where Cecil B. DeMille is also uses his, his, using his imagination. If you ever see a DVD of that film, and they're around, you can see it on a DVD. If you ever see a D, 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 DVD of that film, you'll find that Moses' adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter, joins Israel. And she is with the family. It's not, it's not, in, it's not in Exodus, but it's, it's in the film. <laughs> and Pharaoh's adopted mother is in the family of Moses, and she shelters under the blood of the Lamb. Well, I don't know whether it's history or not, but it's good theology. It doesn't matter. You might be an Egyptian. You may have grown up in Pharaoh's household. You were, talk, you, were talk, you, were, you were taught about the pagan gods of Egypt, but you joined Israel that night, and you sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. Though that salvation really wasn't meant, meant for you. You, you're, you, you were brought up under some pagan, pagan Egyptian religion, and uh, you, were, you were Pharaoh's daughter. You didn't have any religious background of the faith of Israel, but, you, but that night you sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. I can tell you, if Cecil B. DeMille got it right, Moses' mother is in heaven because she sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. Nationality doesn't come into it. If an Egyptian had sheltered under the blood of the Lamb that night, even an Egyptian would have been saved that night. The only thing that matters is sheltering under the blood of the Lamb. And what 
Exodus chapter 6 is saying in chapter 3 is, this is the very nature of God. This is his name. He gets a memorial name that's to last forever. This is what he always is and always will be. This is my name. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking that God might be recognised for what he is. And the very first thing that he is, is he's the God who rescues people by the blood of the Lamb. That's his name. That's the very heart of God. He comes into the lives of slaves and people who've got addictions and bondages and all sorts of things that, that are holding them and gripping them. But he comes and he, he's going to get himself a name. The Bible ever actually says that. I think it's in Nehemiah where it says, I, I got myself a name. God gets himself a name. He reveals who he is. He says, look at me, see what I am. That's what I am, always. I'm always like this. I am, I am. This is my very nature. This is my very being. And we, forever and ever and ever, we call him, he is, he is, Yahweh, the one who's there. We know about him. We know what he's like. And incidentally, it's the same meaning of El Shaddai. God said to, to Moses, hitherto I've been, na- I've been known as El Shaddai. Now I'm going to be known as Yahweh. But actually, if you read the name of El Shaddai, you'll find it's the same thing. When you study the use of the word El Shaddai, it's always used of people who are desperate. It's always used of people who are in bad trouble. You remember Jacob on his deathbed? reminiscing about history, he said, well, we, we sent off Joseph and he was, he was kidnapped by his, by his brothers and they tried to kill him and he went off in, into Egypt and terrible things happened to him. But El Shaddai was with him. What does El Shaddai mean? It means the God who comes down to the, the helpless and the hopeless and those who are desperate and, uh, and are in bad trouble. El Shaddai, the God who comes down to rescue the hopeless and the helpless. That's the meaning of, of El Shaddai. When Abraham is, is 90 years old, 100 years old, and his wife is 90, and they're expecting a baby. That's a bit optimistic, isn't it? And the Bible says it's all right. El Shaddai, El Shaddai will, will fulfill his promises. El Shaddai means the God who does the impossible, the God who comes to you when you're hopeless and helpless. It's the same as Yahweh, it's the same meaning. Hitherto you've been known as El Shaddai, the God who comes down when you're helpless and hopeless. I'm still the same, only now I'm going to, make, I'm now I'm going to call it Yahweh. The God who comes down to slaves and people in trouble and rescues them, doing it by the blood of the Lamb. Well, you see, I'm suggesting to you that the design of the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount is that we should, as it were, ponder these, these themes. And so when Jesus comes, what Jesus does is he reveals God's name. He himself gets given a name. You remember what the angel said to Mary and to Joseph? That they said, call his name Jesus. Yahweh, the Lord saves. Yahweh, Shuach, the Lord saves, the Lord rescues. Call his name Jesus, Yahushuach, because he shall save his people from their sins. The same thing is true of Jesus. Even Jesus, the very character of God, is expressed in Jesus' name. It's the same thing again. Every time you, you, you name God, you're seeing his character, you're seeing who he is and what he is, and you're seeing his power. We can come to that a bit later. And so when Jesus comes, the whole theme of Jesus' life and ministry is expressing the name of God. It's Jesus who is the one fulfilling the name of God. And John, in the Gospel of John, is the one who's always drawing attention to it. When you believe, when you get saved, 
The Bible says that you believe on the name of Jesus. John chapter 3 and verse 18. God so loved the world. Verse 16. God so loved the world. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed. You're condemned, says, says John 3, 18. He, he's condemned because he's not believing on the name. He's not believing upon the name of the only Son of God. Jesus has got a name. He's got a certain character, a certain power, a certain ministry. that The name expresses all of those things. He's got a certain name. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you're putting your faith in his name. You're saying, I know who you are, you're the Son of God. I know what you do, your, your very name is Jesus, the Lord saves. I know that you'll save me. I'm believing in your name. I'm believing in the power you've got to do this thing for me. You're believing in the name of Jesus, says the Bible. And John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 says the same thing. If you don't believe in the Lord, you're calling God a liar because this is his name, this is his character. Now 1 John chapter 3 puts it like this. This is, his, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name. God commands you to believe in the name of Jesus. Not just Jesus, any old Jesus, not anybody, that's just J-E-S-U-S, but the name of Jesus, what he's here to do, what his character is, who he is, is the Son of God. You're believing in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, Jesus, and this is all worked out in John's Gospel. It is John's Gospel especially that says we believe in the name of Jesus. And remember Jesus' prayer. When Jesus is praying on the last earthly night of Jesus, the last night here on planet Earth on the Thursday evening, and he's praying, and he prays to the Father, Lord, I want to glorify you, glorify your Son. And then he says, I've been faithful to you, now just bring me to the end. I'm no longer in the world, I'm coming to you now. Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Keep them under your character, keep them under your power. Be to them what you are, keep them in line with who you are and what you are. Keep them in your name, Jesus prays. And you remember the famous line in, is it the book of Proverbs and, and in Psalm 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he is safe. When you're in trouble in the ancient world, when, when there were battles and warfares going on, they would build these towers, a bit, a bit like English castles, that, that were impregnable, you couldn't get inside them, you were safe inside the tower. And the writer says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And when you're in trouble, when you're wondering what's going to happen to you, when you're feeling guilty, when you're wondering whether you really are going to get to heaven, when you're in trouble, you run, you run into the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he is safe. He's safe in the name of God. He's the God who rescues people in trouble. He's the God who saves us by his blood. He's the God who keeps us in his name. And this is everything that God is doing. So you see, when you get this little few words in the Lord's Prayer, it's just a couple of words. The Lord's Prayer is amazing for its brevity. Here's this entire systematic theology as, as I'm describing it, and yet each line is just a few words. Hello be your name, your kingdom come. I mean, so, these lines are so short. These little headings. When you ponder these little headings, you'll find the entire Christian faith opens up in front of your eyes. 
And the beginning of it all is God himself and his name and his character. And you pray that this might happen. It's being shown to you. You're being told what God's doing and who he is and what he's about. But now you turn it into prayer. You say, Lord, yeah, I see what you're doing. Now, please do it. You turn the very thing that you know he's doing into prayer. This is one of the great keys to the Christian life. You, you turn things into prayer all the time. You turn God's plans into prayer. God tells you, I'm planning to do this. And you say, oh, oh Lord, please do it then. And you start asking him to do what he's told you he's going to do. You turn the plan into prayer. You turn his promises into prayer, especially if they are not being fulfilled. Have you ever found a promise in the Bible and it's not being fulfilled? You read some verse, my God will provide all of your need, and right now you're in need. And you say, well, Lord, I, you know, I, thought, I thought you said you'd meet all my needs. Well, I'm in need now, and I can't see any answers coming. You find a promise, but it's not being fulfilled. Well, you promised me you'd work all things together for good. moment, my life's in a mess. How, how can this possibly be working together for good? Well, you promised wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, he'll be, it'll be given to him. You find some promise in Scripture, it's not being fulfilled. You're feeling foolish, you're not feeling wise at all, things are not working together for good, your needs are not being met, all these promises are there, but you don't seem to be experiencing them. Oh, I'll tell you what to do. You turn the promise into prayer. You go to the Lord and you say, Lord, you promised me to do this for me. You promised you to do it, but it's not happening just yet. Lord, please keep your promises. You turn the promise into prayer. And it'll come, it'll happen in your life. God keeps his promises. It's a bit like what used to happen with my children. Sometimes my children would come to me years ago when they were that high. And they would say, you know, Daddy, buy me a bicycle. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, Christmas time. Daddy, buy me a bicycle. Yeah, when you, when you have next birthday. Then I'll forget all about it. And then birthday time would come, or Christmas would be getting near. Daddy, Daddy, you promised, you promised, you told me you give me a bicycle for Christmas. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, so I did. And you have to keep your promise. It's the same with God. You go to him and you say, Lord, Father, you promised, you promised, you told me, you gave me this promise. How can you not keep your promise? You turn the promise into prayer and God has no choice. I can put it like this. He has so committed himself that he has no choice but to give you the fulfillment of his promise. You turn the promise into prayer and you turn the plans into prayer. God tells you what he's planning to do. He's planning to to spread the gospel everywhere. He's planning to magnify his name and and spread the whole world with the glory of God. The earth will be filled with the glory of God. Everybody everywhere will know the name of the Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. It's promised. It's going it's to happen. Only a question of time. It may be quicker than we think. The only thing we have to do is bring it about, and the first thing we do is we pray. We plead with God to answer his own promises. We plead with God to fulfill his own plans. The very thing he's told us he will do, we turn it into prayer and pray that he will do it. And that's how it will come about. It will come about whether we pray or not. But the only thing is, if you don't pray about it, it will be slower. If you don't pray, somebody else will. If you don't pray, well, ten years' time, somebody else will be praying, and you'll get the answer. It, it, it goes forward as you pray. You can have a promise that stays there for years and years and years, nothing happens. Because you're not really laying hold of it. You're not really implementing it, getting it to take place. But you're seeking God and laying hold of him. You pray, hallowed be 
your name. Well, I was listing the things that the name does. Number one, we believe in God's name. Number two, we are kept in his name. Number three, his name dwells among us. He he dwells in his people. He puts his name among us. And that's what the temple was all about, and the tabernacle. You see, when the tabernacle and the temple were being built and God was giving instructions, he would say to them, I'm, I'm going to put my name there, he would say. And you remember in the Holy of Holies, in the ancient tabernacle and later on in the temple, you remember that inside the Holy of Holies, the glory of God was radiating and shining there. It's not, it wasn't just a bit of symbolism, it, God was actually visibly shining there. And if you went inside that Holy of Holies, which nobody ever did, if you went inside that Holy of Holies, it would kill you. Nobody could ever do it. The only person who could ever go inside the Holy of Holies was the great high priest. And he went in in such a way that he couldn't see anything. Have you ever noticed that? When the high priest went inside the Holy of Holies, he he would take the incense and he would set the incense pouring out smoke and he would go in and the whole place would be full of smoke. He he couldn't see anything, even when he did go in. You remember Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah sees the vision of, of the temple and he hears the angels saying, holy, 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 we are told, and the house was filled with smoke. He wasn't allowed to see anything. That's the way it always was when the high priest went into the temple. They went inside the Holy of Holies, but even they were not really allowed to see very much. They just got some pale little light that was glowing. They could not see the fullness of the glory of God. If they did, it would kill them. God dwelt among his people. Of course, God is everywhere. He fills all space. He fills all time. But when we say that God dwells in a particular place, we mean that he reveals himself there, he shines there, he's there in a way where he's expressing himself and manifesting himself. And that's what he does among the temple, but the temple's gone, there's no temple now, we are the temple. We are the temple of God. And Paul says, don't don't you know that you're God's temple, says Paul to the Corinthians? And so it means that we are the dwelling place of God. The temple symbolised it. The temple was a kind of preview And the great thing that was always said about the temple is that God would dwell there. Deuteronomy chapter 12, where it's being announced. One day, says God, I'm going to make a special place. Hadn't happened yet, it was due to happen, but uh, God keeps on announcing he'll do it one day. One day, you'll you'll not be worshipping in these pagan places. One day, the Lord will choose out of all your tribes to find a place and put his name there and make it his habitation. Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 5. I'm going to choose one place. It turned out to be one place after another. It was Shiloh, then it was somewhere else, and it was Jerusalem. Finally, it was Jerusalem. I'm going to choose a place. And in that place, I'll put a sanctuary and I will, I will make my home there. I'll live inside that building. I'll make my home, said God to the people of Israel in a place which one day I will choose. I'm not going to do it just yet, but I'll do it one day. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 11 says the same thing. Uh, One day there's going to be a place which the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, and there you'll bring all your offerings, you'll do everything there at that place where I am going to put my name. Verse 21 of the same chapter says the same thing. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far away, then you don't need to take your crops. You can sell them and take cash instead. The place where you go to, Jerusalem, it will turn out to be. The place where I choose to put my name. 
But the point that I am making is that that temple is gone, there's a new temple, and the new temple is the people of God. We are God's new temple, and God puts his name in us. God is to be known among us. God is to be visibly shining out in his glory among his people. His name is to be present as his place of glory in his people, the new temple. God dwells among us. And this is the way, this is the reason why the church should be so, so sacred to us. The church, the people of God, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ gathered together in assembly, together. There's something very, very holy and precious about God's people being together. I never like these people that don't come to the meeting and yet they say, sorry, pastor, I'll listen to the tape. Sorry, pastor, I'll listen to the CD, I'll download it. To which I, aren't, I don't normally say anything, but if I do, I say, Jesus never said where two or three tape recorders are gathered together, there I am in the midst. <laughs> Jesus is not there with the CD. He's not there on the download. He's not there with the tape recorder. You can hear some of the most powerful sermons. Uh, I've, I've done it. You, you switch on some ancient sermon of Dr. Lloyd-Jones and you pray it to your children. And you were there on that occasion, as I often was. And there was such power there, such, such a power there. And you pray, you pray the record to your children. They say, oh yeah, it's a bit boring, isn't it? <laughs> But you should have been there, you should have been there. Oh no, you see, you have to be there. Imagine that you didn't come on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came down. I don't think, I don't think the recording would have done you much good. <laughs> it's not the recording or the books. Luther put it like this, the great Martin Luther put it like this. He wanted to publish his books. He wasn't very bothered. He said, no, don't, don't even bother with them, he said. Read Galatians if you like. He said the church is not a pen house. The church is a mouth house. The church is not a place where people read books, it's a place where people speak. And we talk to each other. It's fellowship. The church is not a pen house, the church is a mouth house. And I'm present there among the people, among the living people. Uh, the, these movements in various parts of the world where you, you have a, a multi-site church and you have some church there, everybody else is w- w- watching on a screen 10 miles away or something. An electronic church. Well, it's very good for imparting information. Preaching is not just imparting information. Preaching is speaking on behalf of God, hoping that God will come down. Not just watching a TV program or reading a book. God puts his name there. Hallowed be your name. Where is his name to be felt? It is to be felt among his people. This is, this is where God is. He's, 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 he's among us when we're together. Somebody could be listening to the recording of what we're doing now tomorrow, but it won't have the impact tomorrow that it's having now. You're enjoying it now. I can see you nodding your head. You're interrupting. You're shouting out. You're, doing, you're saying a few things. It's here now. You listen to the recording. It won't be there. It's where the people are. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. This presence of God among his people. We are the temple, not some CD or some, or some download on, on your computer. We are the people of God. That's where God is. And there's something missing if you do it in any other way. God wants his people to be together. We are his temple. And remember what Paul says when they were, when they were damaging the church. Paul said to them, don't you know that you're God's temple? Anybody destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. We are God's temple. His name is put among us. And we have to say, hallowed be your name. We want God's name to be honoured and glorified. And then I want to say, 
that God's name has got power to it. God's name is his character, it's his ministry, it's what he's doing, but it includes his power. When the Bible says we do things in the name of the Lord, it means that we're expecting God to be there as we're doing what we're doing. But when we're doing something in God's name, it, it means that we're expecting God to be at work. Remember what they said in the book of Acts when Peter had healed a man. And it causes a sensation. No one can doubt that it happened. Everybody knew this cripple. He'd been there for years. And the authorities knew, knew all about it. They said, well, there's a notable, there's a notable miracle that's taken place. We, we can't deny it. But let's charge them to preach no more in the name of this Jesus. It, it's the name of Jesus who's done something. And all, all of the authorities, now they can't deny it. A miracle is a miracle. You don't have to persuade people that a miracle has taken place. When a miracle has taken place, everybody knows. Everybody doesn't know that it wasn't a miracle. And that miracle takes place, even pagans are in trouble, they can't deny what happened. They, they know this guy was a, a cripple there for years, and they know he's, not, he, he's no longer that way. They can't deny it. And so they summon all the authorities, what are you doing? What are you doing healing people without our permission? And uh, Peter replies, it, it says, it wasn't us. It wasn't, we didn't do anything. This name, this name, by faith in this name, this name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The name of God has been here. We didn't do a thing. I, I, I just said, in the name of Jesus, arise. That's all I said. The name of Jesus has done this thing to this man. The name of Jesus is powerful. When you do something and you're doing it in the presence of the Lord and God is with you and you're doing it on behalf of him, you're doing it in his name, oh, there's power there, things and things happen. We baptize in his name. What's baptism? Well, I don't have a high view of baptism, it's just a piece of symbolism. You're just expressing your faith. But when you are expressing your faith in the name of the Lord, even, even being dipped in some bit of water. If you're expressing faith, anything might happen. Remember what, what Ananias said, said to, to, um, to Paul two, two or three days after he was saved. He said, come and be baptized, and uh, let me baptize you. And you, you come, I'm going to immerse you, I'm going to dip you in this water. And uh, we read that Ananias tells Paul to be baptized, calling upon the name of the Lord. When you're being baptized, you're expressing faith, and you're calling upon the name of the Lord. Anything might happen. Uh, I'm not believing there's any magic in the water, but anything can happen when you express your faith in Jesus. I knew a little girl, she's not a little girl anymore, but I knew a little girl when she was about nine years old, got saved and wanted to be baptized. But... Uh, Mother says, no, you're too young. You wait a few years. And she went to an evangelistic meeting where, where people being saved and being baptized went to the pastors, will you baptize me? The pastor said, you're a bit young. Does your mum know? No, oh, no well, wait a few years. So her mum wouldn't let her, let, let her get baptized. And the pastors wouldn't let her get baptized. And only about nine years old. But she waited for the evangelistic sermon to be preached and people being baptized afterwards. And when it was all over, the baptism was taking place. She slipped into the swimming pool and she got hold of her shoulders and she baptized herself. <laughs> <laughs> and as she came up out of that water, she was baptized with the Spirit and he'd been praying in tongues and worshiping God. Her life was transformed. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, 
it's not that the water does anything, but if you call upon the name of the Lord, oh, anything can happen. You could be some nine-year-old nine little girl baptizing yourself. But if you call upon the name of the Lord, anything can happen. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. You, you do things in the name of the Lord. You preach in the name of the Lord. You baptize in the name of the Lord. Oh, anything can happen. You talk to your next door neighbor in the name of the Lord. Oh, there's power there and anything can happen. Well, I wanted to have three sessions today, so I want to give us a break. Can we take a break now? Or am I too early? Let's take a break now and then we have some more sessions later. Let's, let's stand and pray. Our Father, I pray that we may be gripped by these things that you put to us in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. May we see the glory and the holiness and the purity and the power of your name. And may we be praying this way every day of our lives. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. Teach us to pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's take a break.